This is Soccer Pilgrim, the podcast dedicated to soccer and travel, where each stadium is shrine and its fans delay people. For the traveler, it is another culture to explore. Welcome to the Soccer Pilgrim podcast with Jason Kim. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Soccer Pilgrim. I'm your host, Jason Kim. And today's episode is at the cultural capital of this very big country that we all know called Russia. And it is, it is impossible to think of Russia without some of these key features like Siberia, furs, vodka, hot women, okay men. Above all, Russia conjures up the image of the Kremlin in Moscow and that beautiful ice cream, soft serve ice cream like roofs and stuff. Or the histo- historical and cultural center of St. Petersburg. That could be another thing that you might think about when you think of Russia. St. Petersburg, once called Leningrad during the Soviet regime, St. Petersburg was once the heart of the Russian Empire. The Russian Tsars resided in the famous Winter Palace. Catherine the Great commissioned the construction of the State Hermitage Museum, now the second largest art museum in the world. And the last imperial family, the Romanovs, funded the construction of the magnificent cathedral called the Church of the Savior on Spilled Blood, uh, which is now a museum. That's such a great name for a church. The Church of the Savior on Spilled Blood. I thought it had something to do with Jesus. You know, Jesus being the Savior and, you know, dying on a cross, spilled blood. But it's not exactly that. Uh, Savior definitely refers to Jesus, but spilled blood was actually... (laughs) That bit was added because the church was constructed on the site of the assassination of the Emperor Nicholas II in 1881. So it got its name from that event, spilled blood, meaning the uh, assassination of the emperor. You don't need to look far in the city to see the remnants of the former Russian Empire. So how does it all fit into football? How does St. Petersburg and its you know deep and rich history you know get involved into soccer? For the Russians, they're striving for football influence to compete against their European counterparts. If you know anything about Russian history, that's sort of been the theme of it. Uh, let me let me elaborate. For the Russians, the strive for football influence to compete against their European counterparts like England, France, Spain, Italy, Netherlands, Portugal, and Germany. For me, at least, it's kind of interesting to see the parallels of history here. As I said, they're competing for football dominance, but in the history, in the early history of the Russian Empire, well, early early modern history of the Russian Empire, the whole thing is about well, their whole thing was to compete against Western European empires like England, France. Spain, Netherlands, Portugal, who've had large empires, and Germany was starting to make moves. Italy didn't have empires, but they're, there's a state of the Catholic Church, so very influential. So again, you're kind of seeing like, so what many of you are probably thinking and arguing that the way I'm seeing it is sort of Russians are doing something similar to what they've done in history, which is to fight for football supremacy and become influential within Europe, or at least within the region. Because many could argue that in terms of Eastern Europe the Balkans are probably countries in the Balkans like Croatia and Serbia are probably more successful or more influential than Russian football or other Europe, Eastern European countries like Poland, Ukraine are couldn't compete with Russia. So the way I see it is that I believe that Russian football is developing into a way where it's going to compete with the rest of Europe. But f- the first step is to become the big league within Eastern Europe. Granted, they probably already are the big league at Eastern Europe. But if the 2018 World Cup has showed us anything, is that they are ready to compete with Western European countries, or they want to be competitive with them. Are they getting there? Maybe, but it doesn't stop them from trying, of course. 
so all this to say, where where does St. Petersburg fit into all of this? They are the seat of the cultural empire of Russia. You know, they've always said that Moscow is more the administrative and political heart and the capital of Russia, whereas St. Petersburg is a cultural capital of Russia. All this to say, I named you like three famous spots in St. Petersburg, and I talk a lot about a little bit of Russian history, very brief. Because Russian history is pretty deep in a lot of assassinations. But anyway, as you can tell, I really want to go to Russia. I've It's been on my bucket list. I really wanted to visit Moscow and St. Petersburg. If also even see Siberia, that's kind of far. <laughs> but I definitely always want to see St. Petersburg. And obviously, it being the Euro, St. Petersburg is one of the host cities of the Euros. And the stadium in St. Petersburg that's hosting the, the Euro matches is called the Krestovsky Stadium. To get a great image of the stadium, I suggest all of you to go watch the official 2018 FIFA World Cup documentary on YouTube or on Amazon Prime. It's really good. So basically that documentary just follows not just the players, but it follows the fans that went to the 2018 World Cup. And they sort of follow them by country. It's shot and produced and uh, and presented kind of like a nature show in a weird way. Not like a nature show, but I mean like in a... I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, but it's being objective with all the fans, and it's like kind of giving you an explanation. It's also explaining it to non-soccer fans. I think that's what makes that documentary so good. It's called the official 2018 FIFA World Cup documentary. I think that's like the title or something like that. It's not a creative title, but it's a very good doc to to watch, and it shows you Russia in a way that I don't think anyone else tends to show Russia. And it's very because it, first it's in the summer, and it's also the theme and atmosphere of the documentary is very celebratory. And you never get to see Russia in that kind of light, so I thought it was pretty cool. Anyway, let's get back into <clears throat> let's get back to the Euro. So the stadium was completed. The Krestovsky Stadium was completed in 2017 and can hold up to 67,000 people or up to 70,000. Uh, I guess that's for like concerts and stuff where you could sell out the floor. It is also home to the venue of FC Zenit Saint Petersburg, one of the biggest, if not one of the best, Russian clubs that are frequently featured in Champions League. The stadium has young history, just like all the other stadiums, or most of the other stadiums. It was built for the 2018 World Cup specifically, and it ter- it's just a young history. I thought, why don't we look at the big matches that happened here within the last two, three years? All right, so let's look at the biggest match into 2018 World Cup. Nigeria versus Argentina on the group stage. That match was shown in documentary. That was a really good one. Argentina beat Nigeria 3-1 or 4-1. And that was the Messi show, if anyone remembered. At, at this time, people were criticizing Messi. He wasn't good enough, doesn't really play well for Argentina. And also, coming from the 2014 uh, FIFA World Cup Finals, where they lost to Germany. So, Argentina had a lot of pressure, and they wanted to prove their critics wrong. And they did so against Nigeria, which Nigeria isn't a bad team. And, I, you know, anyway, that, that was the Messi show that game. And I think that's where Maradona was at that match and he was coked out and celebrating while being fully coked out. Rest in peace to the legend, Maradona. But that's who he was and that's why we loved Maradona for antics like that. Another big game that happened here was France beating Belgium at the semifinals 1-0 with the Umtiti header. Uh, that was the only eventful thing that happened in that game. I remember watching it in Italy and it was like, it was very tense. But if... I kind of wish Belgium won because I feel like this generation needs to prove itself. But, you know, it is what it is. And then the next big game in the World Cup at this uh, at the St. Petersburg venue was Belgium beating England in a third place match. No one really remembers that. I think it was 3-0 where Belgium won. 
But it's third place match. No one really cares. It's just more, oh, we get one extra game. And the biggest match in the Euro 2020 so far. Well, most of the matches in this venue were group stages. So they weren't really that major. So it was still very early in the stadium and in the tournament rather. But the biggest match that happened in this venue as of latest was definitely the Spain versus Switzerland game. Let's set up a little bit of context. So Switzerland just knocked out France in the round of 16, which wasn't supposed to happen. Uh, Switzerland is, quote-unquote, the easy team. They are the beatable team. And France is, champ- I mean, Champions League, World Cup winners. Every position of the field is occupied by an incredibly talented player and a very high-level caliber player at every position. And just as a reminder... Switzerland was leading against France 1-0 in the first half. And then France came back 3-1 in the second half. Just incredible Benzema performance. A beautiful goal by, by Paul Pogba. A lot of people were playing, were blaming Pogba for that game. Why France lost. But that's the stupidest reason you can give. Pogba was amazing. Pogba Conte that game were perhaps the best players on the field alongside, alongside with Benzema. Kingsley Coleman played better than Mbappe. I think that should say enough about... Who really wasn't playing that bad? Who who really was playing bad that game? And then Switzerland was able to equalize 3-3 final, you know, last second or, you know, within the last 20 minutes of the game. And then they take a penalty and then Switzerland beats France on penalty. It goes out to the quarter. And then now we have Switzerland versus Spain, which the game, that game itself went to penalties as well. It was 1-1 and it was pretty it was pretty tight. I think all goals were... Yeah, the first goal was an own goal for our Switzerland. It was like it was too bad. And then they equalized. And then they go to penalty. And then they lost that penalty. But it was too bad because like Spain were were amazing at penalties. They, they were just finishing top corner with conviction, with technique. It was really well done. The pressure didn't seem to get to Spain at the penalties. Whereas Switzerland... Perhaps they chewed off a little bit more than they can than they can handle. However, you have to congratulate Switzerland for making that far to the quarterfinals when no one expected them to. They even take they took Spain they took Spain to penalties. That means they held them at bay at extra time, and then they thought we could perhaps beat them at penalties. Risky move, but it's not a bad tactic, and I think Switzerland could have done so. But when I look at the Swiss penalties, they weren't as good. They weren't as convincing. You could just tell that they're not going to score. And perhaps that says more about their inexperience as a nation to make it this far in the Euros as opposed to individual experiences. Shakiri probably should have stayed on take a penalty, but, you know, that's I'm not a manager. And Granit Xhaka being left out of the squad, I think he had too many yellow cards, but Granit Xhaka not being able to play at this at this point of the game or not to play for Switzerland against, against Spain, was definitely a big loss. I think Granit Xhaka was necessary for this game. If he had played, if he had played for Switzerland in the game against Spain, I think it would have been a, maybe a different result. Maybe they could have won on penalties because he could take a penalty. So it, it's too bad. But at the same time, the silver lining is that Switzerland won. Uh, well, Switzerland made it to the quarterfinals, and they weren't expected to make it this far. They were in no one's predictions besides the, the Swiss's own fans. Congratulations to Switzerland to make it that far and winning it at St. Petersburg. So yes, Switzerland versus Spain was the biggest match happening at St. Petersburg. And when you think about... So Switzerland versus Spain 
was the biggest match at St. Petersburg. And then the rest of the games, semifinals and the finals of the Euros will all be happening in London and Wembley. But I still have a few more episodes to or cities to talk about before we get there. Amsterdam, Rome, Sevilla, Munich. I'll get to all of those and I'll talk about the biggest matches that happened in each and one of them and even the kind of football that influenced by these kind of stadiums or by these kind of cities. And when I think about St. Petersburg in Russia, there's not much to say. But when you think about, maybe not so much by St. Petersburg, but Russian football, the one big name that will definitely stand out is Lev Yeshin. He was the last and only player, or let me rephrase that. He was the last and only goalkeeper to have ever won the Ballon d'Or or Ballon d'Or which is Ballon d'Or is the award for the best player of the year, and it's voted by journalists. And he was the last one to ever, the only and last goalkeeper to ever won, win that award. And this was like in 1958 or something like that during the Soviet Union. So in all honesty, if you're asking about Russian football, I can't really give you that much answers because it, I still see it as something developing. Not, I'm not saying that it's the same level level as Canada. Canada's soccer scene is, de- is definitely developing, but... Russia has been developed, but it's not at the same level as, let's say, Netherlands or Portugal. Portugal and Netherlands are smaller countries, and they're considered smaller leagues within the greater uh, Western European leagues, but still respected. You know, people still looked at the Netherlands and Portugal for those influential players to come out and really influence the game. Uh, I'll talk about it. I'll talk about it more in the next episode when it comes to uh, Amsterdam and Dutch football. But when Europe looks to the Netherlands. They always expect at least one highly technical player to just be a pivotal pivotal part of a team of any club. Whereas Russia, you don't think that. Uh, Russia, you don't really, you don't get the same repression. That isn't to say there are bad Russian players. There's a lot. Like I think Denis uh, Denis Cherichev is in fact is a very good player. Akinfeyev is also a great goalkeeper, but he seems to be amazing only for Russia. But then again, I don't pay attention to him at club level. So you know, if you know about him, then you know about him. So sometimes I'm wondering, like, what is it? What is it that Russia is missing? Perhaps a superstar to to come out to come out the ranks. I mean, you can say that about any country. Any country needs a superstar to make it popular. I remember Zhuba was very popular for Russia during the World Cup. Denis Cherichev, I just said his name. Oh man, he scored some amazing goals at the World Cup. And then they have a Portuguese player, Fernandez, who's playing defense, and he got his Russian citizenship because he was playing in the Russian league for so long. So if the Russians could do something like that, attract other European talents and then give them citizenships if they played there for X amount of years, that could be Russia's way into making moves towards the top, if you will. However, I do have to say when it comes to Russian football, especially in the Russian league, there's so much racism. Like for FC Zen in St. Petersburg, they had a Brazilian player named Hulk, like the, you know, like the cartoon Hulk, H-U-L-K. And the reason why he's called Hulk because the guy's j- j- jacked. He's so ripped, really ripped. Within the soccer world, everyone's like, this guy's stupid ripped to be a player. He was fast, left-footed, a great dribbler. And, oh yeah, he's Brazilian. And he looks like, when you picture Brazilian, he probably looks like what you think a typical Brazilian would look like. You know, Brazil is very multicultural and multi-ethnic. There's people who look, you know, there's uh, there's black people, there's white people, there's indigenous people. Then there's people who are kind of mix of everything. And Hulk seems Hulk seems to be that guy. He looks like your typical South American or whatever stereotypical image of a South American you might have. Did I say he was a great player? He was a fantastic player. And him going to FC Zenit St. Petersburg was 
a very big uh, deal because he was good enough to play at any top European league in Western Europe, like in England, France, or Italy, or whatever. But he wants to go play in Russia because of, I guess, they're paying him a lot. But once there, he was saying how he was receiving a lot of racial taunts and a lot of racism, not just from fans of other teams, but also from his own fans. He was talking about how he was getting monkey chant noise directed towards him. People were throwing bananas out of him. I'm not saying this to say that all Russian football is bad, or I'm not saying that Russia is a racist country. Racism exists in any country, in any form. So to say that Russia is entirely racist would be kind of unfair, but that does exist. That does happen. It continues to happen in Russia, and I don't know if they care to fix it or not. I really don't know because it seems like maybe that's Russian attitude, or who knows? A lot of I, I've heard. I I know some Eastern European friends. I was just saying, well, Russians are just racist. Again, I don't want to generalize everything, but I don't want to generalize an entire country based on the few assholes. But that doesn't change the fact that per- this is. What it's like to play football in Russia. That if you're an ethnic minority. People are going to talk shit. And people are going to say things about you. So for me it's. If the Russian Federation or Russian Football Federation. Wants to. Make soccer more attractive. And more appealing to watch. For. Not just. I mean not just for themselves. But also for for everyone else watching. Because you know football is an international sport. And if you want to become popular or not just popular if you want to become strong internationally if you want the russian national team to be competitive with like france or germany you need your league to be attractive and worth watching because that's how the money comes in and that's how you start developing players and developing better systems and for my personal argument if the russians fix that element of racism and made the league a little more inviting I think they could change all that, but that's more of a cultural shift than it is a policy shift. Maybe a policy shift could shift the culture, or the culture could shift policy. Who knows uh, at this point? But that's what I think that needs to change with Russian football. If they really want to f- compete with England, I think that's what they need to do. And who knows? Maybe there's a ton of eth- ethnic minorities that want to be professional footballers in Russia, but aren't able to get past that barrier into professional because of racism. You know, that could be a thing. Who knows? Because when I look at this Russia team, it's mostly white. And there's not... All, I mean, maybe it's like 90% white people in Russia. Definitely. But you know what I mean? Like, there's there's definitely like one or two very talented ethnic minority players who were trying to get in but were denied because of racism. That could have definitely have happened. If it happens in Canada, it can happen anywhere. Anyway. So, that was the episode on St. Petersburg. A city with a lot of history. I didn't talk a lot about the city, but I talked a lot more about football itself. But the theme of this episode, what I was trying to say is that if you look at early modern Russian history and St. Petersburg is emblematic of that and representative of that, Russia has always tried to strive to compete with Western European cities or countries. St. Petersburg is a good example of that. Look, like big, beautiful art museums, palaces, well, yeah, palaces and beautiful churches. They're all kind of done, maybe not the church, but the palaces and, and museum is all done in influence and inspir- inspiration by Western European cities and arts and what have you. So that being said, I think what Russian football is, is quite similar. They're trying to compete with what with the great Western European countries. I think they can. They just perhaps they need to change things culturally or institutionally within their footballing structure. But that being said, next episode is in Amsterdam, the Johan Cruyff Arena, or Johan Cruyff Park. That's a very famous name. 
And the episode after that will be Rome. And then after that is Sevilla. And then it's Munich. And for the final, I'll talk about London and Wembley. And then talk about the final itself. And then last episode, 12th episode, I'll just give a recap of the Euros. And, you know, I guess the highlights or what are the things of this Euros that I enjoyed the most. So anyway, thank you for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe and follow to Soccer Pilgrim on any of the any of your podcast streaming platforms. And also, though, you can follow me or you can follow Soccer Pilgrim on Instagram. And you can also follow my personal account, Jason underscore Jisoo on Instagram. Jisoo spelled as G-I-S-O-O. And as always, thank you for being an audience from Montreal. This is Soccer Pilgrim. Thank you.